Well, hello, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to the Highway Community's weekly podcast. Julie Peterson here, and I am so glad that you're here, whether you're joining us live or after the fact. Thank you for being with us. We'll be taking communion today, and so I invite you to take a moment to find some juice and a cracker or bread or really whatever it is that you happen to have on hand and participate with us in this act of remembrance in just a bit. Today, we're concluding our teaching series, Stories of Transformation. Stories are powerful vehicles that God uses to reveal something true and beautiful about who he is and what he does in us, through us, and among us. Throughout the summer, as we've been emerging from the socially distanced and isolating realities of the pandemic, and as we've been reforming as a combined church community, Highway staffers have been sharing our personal life stories. We're sharing these so that through the giving and receiving of our stories, you can know us, we can be known, and we can better know God as we see his redemptive and transforming work in the lives of others. And also, during this series, we've heard stories from Jesus, parables that contain invitations to encounter his transforming work in our day-to-day lives. We launched into this series 11 weeks ago, and I am sad to see it come to an end, y'all. This has been a really special series for me, and I hope that it's been for you as well. If you've been keeping close tabs on the staff lineup, you probably know that today's story will be shared by Nick Bartunek, Highway's Creative Arts Pastor. Last, but most certainly not least. Nick's been on staff at Highway for about eight years as part of the creative arts and worship team. He and his amazing wife, Brittany, have been married for four years and blessed to be in their loving care is Sweet Pepper, the family dog. Nick's primary ethnic backgrounds are Italian and English, which, in his words, means that he's in the constant tension of wanting to talk very loudly about himself whilst simultaneously cramming down all his emotional baggage in pure Anglo-Saxon form. (laughs) A fun fact about Nick is that he's also Scottish on both sides of his family, and when he was much younger, he played the bagpipe for several years to get in touch with his inner William Wallace. Nick also wore a kilt to his final day of eighth grade, and still to this day, when he reconnects with classmates, they say, hey, weren't you that kilt guy? (laughs) Something that I appreciate about Nick is his tender, generous, and compassionate heart. Nick cares deeply about others and gives of himself fully to meet the needs of those around him, especially the hurting, the lonely, the vulnerable, and the voiceless. I've seen this in so many ways. Being on a yes system when help is needed to pack and distribute food to people experiencing food insecurity. Covering the cost of a babysitter to gift someone a much needed date with their spouse. And extending arms of inclusivity wherever he goes, and so, so much more. I know we're in for a treat as Nick shares with us today. And so, without further ado, I'll hand it to him. Nick, please take it away. Thank you so much for that lovely intro, uh, Julie. I really appreciate that. 
My name is Nick Bartunik, as Julie mentioned, and uh, I'm really honored today to be able to share a story from my life that was very transformational. So when I was about 15, I started to get involved in music and eventually uh, started writing my own songs and began performing them and recording and began touring as well with the band. And uh, in that time in the music industry and art world, uh, I fostered a close friendship with a local photographer. Uh, we went from uh, doing pictures together to me eventually working for her as an assistant. And during one season of time, this photographer, whose name was Emmeline, uh, actually connected with a really uh, interesting woman named Lana. And Lana was uh, broadly accomplished, to say the least. Uh, I still don't know the full story, literally, because of national security, but um, Lana did cybersecurity work with the U.S. government. And I actually remember seeing pictures of Lana, uh, you know, exiting a private jet, wearing a bulletproof vest, uh, surrounded by a bunch of guys in suits who looked like they probably worked for the Defense Department. It kind of looked like they were in a desert setting. So to say that Lana uh, had some mystery about her would be kind of an understatement. And although I never really saw the full scope of things, uh, Lana also owned uh, several businesses and had actually sold several successful businesses and was immensely accomplished in that way as well in business. Uh, but yet the most important thing that I really think you should take away from my description of Lana is really this, that, um, you know, in all the time that I knew Lana, she was incredibly generous and kind, humble, always down to earth, and she genuinely loved life and she really enjoyed being able to share in that life with, with others. And uh, whenever uh, Lana uh, had a fashion shoot, which is what usually her and Emmeline would collaborate on, uh, naturally I was there to assist on the shoot. And um, on one hand, I was this skinny, awkward, kind of ragamuff, ragamuffin-looking kid, which is the exact opposite kind of person that was usually hanging out at these photo shoots um, that I was helping with, whereas most of the people there were very chic and very cool models who were trying on these like weird uh, high-end boutique fashion outfits. You know, I was probably wearing a very worn-out Coldplay shirt with really unkempt hair and acne, and, you know, as a teenager, probably also not smelling very good either. Um, but even in the midst of all that, Lana was truly, you know, my biggest fan and a huge supporter, really, of anything that I did. And she made me feel so seen and so appreciated, even in places where I really was clearly the outsider. And when Lana found out that I was in a band, um, she would always ask me to play new songs for her and would ask me about what was going on with my band and sort of the music scene in the Bay Area. And during these times, Lana would also say something that has stuck with me since then, which is, you know, Nick, no matter what, don't stop playing music, keep going, uh, don't ever stop. And she said that every time that I saw her, and uh, that had a huge impact on me. Now, eventually, my band uh, was able to um, accomplish something that was a huge win for us. It was really an amazing opportunity. And naturally, word got back to Lana about uh, this accomplishment. And the next time that I was hanging with her, she said, you know, Nick, I heard about what happened and I am so happy for you. I am so proud of you. And like many times before uh, this, she asked me to play a song. Could you sing for me? So Lana walked over to this guitar case and popped out this acoustic guitar and uh, I played a few songs. And at the very end of this sort of mini performance uh, of sort of VH1 behind the music, 
Um, Lana said, Nick, I am so proud of you and so happy about this, uh, this opportunity that you've had. And I'd really, really like for you to have that guitar that you're playing as a gift, but also as a celebration of what you've accomplished. And that guitar was well-crafted. It was beautiful and much, much nicer than anything I owned thus far as a musician. Um, growing up, I was very poor. Uh, my family really struggled with money and uh, the idea of owning an instrument, let alone a nice one, was just, uh, was just not in the cards for me, unfortunately. So for me as a teenager, this was like someone basically handing me the keys to a Ferrari and saying, this is yours now, you can, you can drive this as much as you want. Um, in fact, I was so overwhelmed by this offer uh, that in some kind of awkward adolescent brain glitch, I did one of the stupidest things I think I've ever done in my life, and which is that I defaulted to what I like to call polite mode. And I, I did the, oh no, that's too kind. I, I could never take this nice guitar from you. And every fiber of my being at that moment was like, what are you doing? You idiot. You, you, why are you saying no? You clearly want this guitar. And Lana responded, no, no, really. It's totally fine. I bought it a long time ago. Don't play it. And I, I think I, I would be honored if you took it, but I still maintained this bizarre <laughs> position that I had taken some reason where I, I didn't accept her gift. So as you can imagine, the rest of, of that week, I felt great inside, um, <laughs> held it together. Uh, now, actually, I was uh, constantly kicking myself for what I did. And in a move, uh, I think, really of, of just pure grace and kindness, um, my girlfriend at the time uh, could see that I had biffed it harder than anyone had ever biffed in history. <laughs> and she actually went and talked to Lana and explained the situation and went and picked up the guitar for me. And I came home one day to find uh, essentially a brand new Epiphone master-built guitar. And I just want to emphasize here um, that for me, this gift uh, was not only immensely sentimental in terms of its meaning, but it was something that, you know, I'd never be able at that time to acquire or afford really on my own. And, and literally, this represented a second chance that I had uh, to bounce back from a really stupid, stupid, dumb teenage decision. And that dumb decision was to say no initially to this gift that I was given. And it was, it was such an impactful gift at that time. And it, and it came at a really special time for me as well. So it was just really amazing to have received that. And so the next time that I saw Lana, uh, I just didn't even really have the words. Uh, all I could say was a huge huge thank you. And I wrapped my arms around Lana and gave her the biggest hug I could manage uh, because I was just so blessed and so touched by what she had done. Then something unexpected happened. About a week later, my girlfriend was, was talking with me and we were just kind of expressing like, that was so crazy, you know, and so wonderful that Lana gave me this, this gift. And my girlfriend paused and in the middle of the conversation, she said something that um, kind of blew my mind. She said, you know, you really blessed Lana. And I was like, what? Like, I, how, how would I bless her? She just gave me this amazing gift. You know, what, what have I really done, ever done for her? Um, but my girlfriend said something that, that caused me to stop in my tracks. I will never forget this moment. 
She said, Lana was so moved when you hugged her because she never ever thought that a Christian would even want to touch her. And, you know, like a lot of people, it's very possible that Lana uh, had painful experiences with the church or with Christians. And speaking for myself, even I've been hurt by the church. And maybe, maybe you have as well. But there is a, a pretty crucial detail here that I've saved for this moment in the story. I would love to tell you a little bit about Lana. Uh, Lana was born as Matthew. And I don't have uh, the time here to explain all of Matthew's story, but it's really a truly incredible one, which involves getting involved in hacking and getting caught by the FBI as a teenager and through some amazing second chances, uh, turning, uh, you know, Matthew turned his life around and, um, you know, even then it was still an immensely hard life. And there was something that had been going on in Matthew for years. Uh, Matthew was experiencing uh, what is called gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. And that was just the start to, frankly, a really difficult journey. Uh, when I met Lana, uh, they were still in the midst of, of that journey and trying to figure out a lot of things. Um, the challenges were, were far from over uh, in more ways than, than really I have time to articulate. Um, just as it is really with all our stories, things are so complex. And, you know, at around that time, I'll never forget reading some, some blog posts that, that Lana had written. Uh, the one consistent theme through a lot of them was really heartbreaking. It was this common thread of wondering if God could really love someone like Lana. And there were real doubts and questions about God's love for someone that was experiencing gender dysphoria. And unfortunately... Uh, the reality that we need to grapple with as Christians is that, generally speaking, the church hasn't been a place where gay or lesbian or transgendered people are told that they are loved. Uh, many times it has been a place where they have maybe been told, even overtly, the exact opposite of that, that they are not loved. So, you know, if we are known to love God as Christians and we are saying we don't love someone like Lana, then it then it's only reasonable that Lana may have felt like God didn't love her. Um, I personally did not grow up in a culture and social situation where I was surrounded uh, by a lot of compassion for folks like Lana or that even just had a different sexual identity experience than me. Uh, I also grew up in a church that just didn't really talk about things like this. And the few times that they did come up, you know, in retrospect, they were handled very terribly. And I think they really caused um, a lot of trauma for people. And I am deeply uh, saddened and really regretful to say that growing up, my responses to um, certain people or situations like this were the absolute um, opposite of Christian love. Uh, I might not have been holding up signs on the street corner that said that God hated gay people. But the jokes that I made with my friends, the way that I talked about gay or lesbian or trans people was uh, disgraceful, to say the least. Uh, there was nothing Christ-like about it. And uh, I did not honor the image of God that they carried, that we all carry inherently, by how I talked about them or how I thought about them. And I think that really, it kind of boiled down to this. Loving someone who felt that different from me was frankly very scary. And I reacted out of a place uh, of fear more than anything. And in 
uh, a reversal of roles, the crazy thing is that by speaking affirmation and encouragement into me, by giving me this phenomenal gift, even though I was someone that honestly may have felt unsafe or scary to love, Lana was loving me more like Christ had called me to love her. And when I read through scriptures, I, I, I see examples time after time everywhere of Jesus intentionally seeking out those in society who are rejected, attacked, and, and pushed to the edges. And those that were scary to love. And we all um, know these stories, but we're going to revisit them and not, not one by one in detail, but just to look at them kind of as a web of interconnected stories that, that speak to a broader approach that Jesus had. So in Mark 2, um, Jesus eats with Levi, the tax collector, uh, stepping over a pretty clear social boundary that put Levi off limits to faithful Jewish people. Le- Levi was seen as unclean and was also seen as a political traitor because he collected taxes on behalf of Rome who were occupying uh, Palestine at that time. In John chapter 4, Jesus, uh, he breaks a social but also a racial boundary by not only speaking with a Samaritan woman, but being alone with her as well. And Samaritans were seen um, at that time as racially impure and religiously impure uh, by, by the Jewish community uh, be, because they intermarried with other tribes and people groups. And in John chapter 8, Jesus defends and actually saves a woman from being stoned who was caught in adultery. She had committed uh, a sexual sin and was the subject to the punishments that the Pharisees were going to give her. But Jesus really turns the tables on everyone, the crowd and the Pharisees, by saying, you know, you without sin cast the first stone. And everyone put their stones down. And in Matthew 8, Jesus speaks with and heals the servant of a Roman centurion. And centurions were a walking symbol of oppression for the Jewish people. Um, They were in charge of soldiers and were in charge probably of, you know, maintaining the status quo. And Jesus, in front of the crowd of Jewish people, and I'm sure many other people, actually praises the centurion's faith in his ability to heal the centurion's servant, saying that I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And I can only imagine what it must have been like to be a Pharisee and to hear Jesus say that there was no other faith like the centurion's. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus, when asked what constituted a neighbor in the command to love your neighbor as yourself, he utilized the picture of a Samaritan man above a priest and a Levite helping and caring for a Jewish man who had been beaten and robbed, but ignored by the Levite and the priest. He essentially said that even a Samaritan needed to be loved. So I can't hammer this point home enough. The people that Jesus hung out with uh, scandalized the society around him. It scandalized his religious community. It scandalized his disciples. And um, there was something safe and easy about the kinds of people that Jesus hung out with. But he was actively engaged in crossing these massive social chasms, seeking out the outsider and intentionally spending time with the folks that were known as sinners or traitors or whatever negative adjective was being thrown at them. And the thing was that folks like Lana were my Samaritans. They were my tax collectors. They were my, quote, others. But I was the Pharisee. So when my girlfriend told me that I blessed Lana because she thought I'd never want to touch her in that moment. I felt deeply, deeply convicted. And it started a years long journey about really, frankly, relearning uh, to love people who scared me 
or felt difficult to love for, for one reason or another. And maybe that person was my cranky neighbor or a bully or someone that I just didn't like. And sometimes, you know, the people that were hard to love or scary to love were pretty pedestrian in nature. So here's the question that I ask of all of us, myself included. Who is our tax collector? Who is our Samaritan? Who is our adulterer? Who is our other? And most importantly, are we loving them as our neighbor? In Scripture, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says this in chapter 12. Brothers and sisters, strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts, but I shall show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in human and angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous, is not pompous, it is not inflated, it is not rude, it does not seek its own interests, it is not quick-tempered, it does not brood over injury, it does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You may know already that the word Christian actually means belonging to Christ, and we do. We do belong to Christ, and we strive to be. We want to be shaped more and more and more to be like Christ, to stand in the holiness that he calls his people to stand in, but also to love those that we find really scary or hard to love. And to really wrestle with this question, why is it hard to love that person in the first place? The tension in this is certainly not lost on God, and it should not be lost on us. So in a moment, uh, we're actually going to be taking communion together. And communion is uh, something that we do as a practice, as a community, uh, to remember Christ, to remember his sacrifice, to come to one common table, to take the cup and the bread together as the body of Christ. So we're going to do that now. And I'll give you a moment to go and grab juice or water or a cracker or a piece of bread, whatever you have lying around. If you weren't able to do that yet, go ahead and do that now. And while that's going on, I would love um, to just read this prayer out loud over us, and I hope that you will also join me. Almighty Father of grace and mercy, we come before you not holding ourselves up as paragons of perfection, but as your children and people who need your guidance. We need your heart, Lord, to love those around us. Holy Spirit, through your power, would you fill us with the sight to see what we need to see about ourselves. Help us to see how we have not loved others as ourselves and how we have not loved you with all our hearts. Show us how our eyes have been blinded by the scales of society or by the scales we place there with our own hands. Lord Jesus, Christ, Messiah, may we live up to our moniker of Christian through your perfect power and grace. May we truly belong to you today and every day from here until judgment into eternity.
in all things, Lord, give us the wisdom, the strength, and security within ourselves to love with a love that transcends cultural definition and boundary and limit. May our fear never hold our hearts back from loving well. We long to be like you, Lord Christ. Amen. And so if you join me, I'm just going to read a brief passage from Luke chapter 22. This is a scene in the Bible where Jesus is sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. And this is the day before he heads to the cross. And it's an important one for us because it's where we see communion given as a gift to the church by Christ himself. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Thank you so much for being here with us online. Blessings on you this week. 